Reform in the criminal justice world doesn't happen overnight, or because of the work of one single organisation. Today, I'm talking with the director of the Criminal Justice Alliance about the steps towards reform, especially in the areas of systemic racism in policing and valuing of the contribution of those with lived experience. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Nina Champion is director of the Criminal Justice Alliance, the CJA, a coalition of over 160 member organisations working towards a fairer and more effective criminal justice system. Prior to the CJA, Nina was head of policy at the Prisoners Education Trust, where she established the Prisoner Learning Alliance and was on the steering group for the European Prison Education Association. In 2017, Nina was awarded a Winston Churchill Memorial Trust Fellowship where she travelled around Europe and the United States researching prison-university partnerships and learning more about lived experience leadership. Nina began her career as a criminal defence solicitor and then worked for charities including Catch-22, Prison Advice and Care Trust and Women in Prison, setting up and managing various prevention, rehabilitation and resettlement projects. She also worked in Parliament whilst completing a Master's in Government, Policy and Politics. Along the way, she has also volunteered in various roles, including as a community reparation mentor with a youth offending team and in a prison visitor centre. As well as being the director of the CJA, Nina also currently sits on the Ministerial Advisory Board on Female Offenders, the HMPPS Service User Advisory Group and a third sector special interest group on COVID-19. Nina, I'm amazed that you found five minutes to talk to me, but I'm very grateful for it. Welcome to Justice Focus. Thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. And and how how are you right now? You must be juggling so many different organisations trying to grapple with the changes to the working environment. Um, what's 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 the normal working day of the director of the CJA, and and what is it now in this, this <laughs> new and interesting time? Well, in a sense, we're doing what we've always done, which is working with our members. So our members um, work right across the criminal justice pathway from prevention and policing and courts right through to prisons and probation, also victim services, restorative justice, covering a whole range of issues. And I think what has really come up over the last three months of of lockdown and the pandemic is really just shining a spotlight on all the problems that Mm. our members already knew were there, the cracks in the system, um, you know, where the system wasn't fair or effective. And this has really just shone a big spotlight on them. And so in a sense, um, this has made the situation worse for, for many people impacted by the criminal justice system, mm. uh, whether it's people in, in prison spending 23 and a half hours, you know, um, in solitary confinement, essentially, or whether it's people leaving prison, uh, you know, returning to a very different world uh, than, than they were expecting to, to victims of domestic violence who, you know, have been uh, locked in at home with, you know, with um, people, you know, abusing them, um, to young people who... You know, we're in schools or youth mm. programs or you know services that were supporting them that suddenly had to go virtual, um, remote overnight, and maybe yeah. they didn't have phones or you know the internet or things to actually you know to keep um, on with that support. So, um, but what's really struck me um, over the last six weeks, we've been running virtual cuppa events, and that's what I was doing this mm. morning, bringing together groups of our members um, to 
sort of share good practice, to share experiences and learning and to break down silos. And what's really struck me over the past six weeks of talking to people is just how adaptable and creative and innovative, you know, our members have been. And many of them have said on the calls, you know, we had to kind of take stock initially and think, do we furlough people? Do we stop mm. doing what we do? And pretty much all of them have said, actually, we just we just we got rid of the business plan. We said, right, let's we have people in need. You know, our mission is to try to support these people. How do we do what we do and you know in this new environment and have mm. within days and weeks you know been really agile at, at really understanding what the needs are and responding to those needs immediately um, and mm. it's been an absolute kind of honor and privilege really talking to our members to uh to understand that and being able to gather that you know kind of harness that expertise um harness mm. that kind of the asks you know the actually our lives would be easier if government yeah. did x or y or this happened from very practical operational things through mm. to kind of bigger policy asks and be that kind of conduit between practitioners on the ground um and policy makers and i feel that particularly because i used to be one of those practitioners you know working on the ground being really frustrated you know working with mm. people leaving you know meeting people at the gate or working with young people at, at risk of you know being involved in the criminal justice system um and constantly kind of thinking if only this would happen, it would make it a lot easier. So, mm. so that's our role really at the CJN. So that's always been our role, but it's actually just been even more important over the last last three months. Yeah. And, and for those that aren't that familiar with the CJA, I'm just trying to understand where you sort of sit in terms of trying to influence policy and how close you are to practitioners and things. So as, as you mentioned, you've you spent time as working specifically within in policy i know you've worked kind of close to to the to the ground as well so how how do you feel like you fit in in terms of how close you are to government how close you are to policy people and and how has your experience doing those different roles impacted how you how you see your vision as the director of the cga well, I mean, many of our organisations, we do have, you know, the sort of bigger organisations that do have, you know, policy mm. and communications, you know, members of staff that, that do their own sort of advocacy. Um, but many of our organisations that, that we work with don't have that capacity. They're really focused on the front line, on, you know, meeting the needs of the people that, you know, they're providing services for and with. Um, and so don't have that time to sort of feed into you know, government mm. policy, to respond to consultation responses, to of you know meetings with ministers or with senior civil servants but but they do want their views to be heard and, and mm. it's that the most important you know um voices to be heard is people that are both working on the front line but also people that are impacted so we yeah. have um as part of the cja we have a lived experience expert group and it's something i'm really passionate about and have, have always tried to do throughout my career is thinking about mm. how can we bridge this gap between people sitting in the ivory towers making policy yeah, and people yeah. that are genuinely on, you know, kind of being impacted by these policies on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. Um, and so uh, we've been able to kind of harness both the expertise of people with lived experience who many of them actually run their own charities. So they're kind of mm. running small social enterprises or charities, maybe just a handful of staff doing fantastic uh, work in, you know, particular regions or areas and so they're able to feed into the CJA what they're mm. seeing on the ground with both their lived and sort of professional experiences, um, what needs to change. And so we're able to, through different advisory boards, like you mentioned, through consultation responses, through our kind of proactive work, 
through our meetings with ministers mm. uh, to try and just weave in as many of those messages as we can um, through to through to policymakers. And what I've tried to do with the CJA is it's actually two years today since I started with the CJA. I saw on Twitter, uh, yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's been an interesting two years, but what, what really excited me about the CJA when I, and why I wanted to join was is that it, because it spans that whole system, it can really kind of look at kind of systemic issues mm. within criminal justice. So there's obviously hundreds of different small issues um, that our organisations raise and that, that we can help raise. But fundamentally, to get that big shift in criminal justice, it's about culture change. It's about mm. systemic change. And so that's where we kind of, uh, what the CGA tries to do as well, is kind of look at an issue, but look at it right across the system. How yeah. does this impact from prevention? How does this impact victims? How does this impact prisons? Look at those kind of broader systemic issues. Yeah. No, I think it's a really good point because as, as you talk about with systemic issues, it obviously takes a long time to make any impact on any change. And obviously you'll know from working in charities before that there's such a demand on sort of the, the project churn and chasing the next set of funding so that you can sustain even your office and the people that work there as well as trying to do the projects. And so do you see do you, do you see the CJA as sort of providing that stability so that and the, the longer term visions while the other charities actually have to worry about this project cycle all the time? Yeah, that's what we try and do, really. I mean, that's sort of taking that really sort of long-term systemic view. Um, I mean, what's interesting, I think, in you know, as an organisation, we don't take any government funding so that we can be, um, you know, right. completely yeah. independent and can, you know, and many of our organisations, you know, have contracts because a lot of the charity world is now, you know, sort of contractual, um, which may prevent them from. Um, speaking out or sort of advocating mm-hmm. as they would wish. And so, you know, we're essentially a route for them to be able to feed in um, what's happening on the ground and things that they might want to raise, um, but they can do it through us rather than, mm. than directly. And I think that's really important. I think what also happens with the funding world, unfortunately, is you, you know, people are pitted against each other in terms of competition with commissioning yeah. and things. Yeah. And so, what we try and do in our space at CJA is essentially when people come together, whether it's through our expert groups or members meetings or virtual cuppers that we've been holding, in a sense, people are sort of putting their own organisation slightly to one side and mm. having just a bit of headspace to say, what's the bigger picture about what mm. you know, we're all here to try to achieve the same vision, you know, of a fair and effective criminal justice system. What does that look like? How can we achieve it and work mm. together and collaborate? Um, because so often the system funding and other mechanisms in a sense does the opposite it, it sort of yeah. pulls people apart and into competition so yeah. having places and spaces where people can come together as a collective and say mm. how do we as a whole group um achieve this change i think is really important yeah yeah and how have you found the sort of transition to from from being in the policy world, I mean, I know you worked in Parliament for a while and then across several different organisations. So have you, do you feel like this work as, a, as the director of such a broad organisation is, is very different from what you were doing before? And, and has that experience influenced what you're doing now? Um, so my first policy role was actually the, the job I did before this, which was at Prisoners Education Trust mm. as head of policy there. Um, and that was really sort of developing the policy function as an organisation that hadn't done policy specifically you know beforehand 
um, and setting up another alliance, the, the Prisoner Learning Alliance. I, lo- I love an alliance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, we could do with a few and, more, I think. Yeah, yeah and, and it was very weird because obviously you become a real kind of niche expert after spending seven years. You know, I kind of mm. knew, uh, you know, prison education and all the policies and practices around it and internationally. Mm-hmm. You know, at the back of my hand after seven years and would speak internationally on this on very niche issue and then moving from a kind of very niche issue backwards to kind of mm-hmm. taking a much more kind of whole system view actually initially felt quite overwhelming because there are so many <laughs> problems and so many yeah, issues that, yeah. that you know across the system but it's actually a real kind of privilege to be able to take that kind of helicopter view and my career in a sense has spanned right across the criminal justice uh sort of system so yeah, as you mentioned, I was started as a solicitor, so I was in and out of police stations and courts. Mm. Um, you know, I then worked with young people in Brixton, doing you know, young people before they'd enter the criminal justice system or on the fringes of the criminal justice system. Um, I then worked had a, uh, an office as a cell in Wormer Scrubs Prison, uh, working with yep. Yep. You know, dad, well. dads in prison and their, and their families. And I think well, we kind of crossed over yeah, very slightly, early, actually, when we were at Scrubs. But that yeah. was fascinating, actually, just being on the wing, not just going in and delivering the service and coming out, but actually mm-hmm. kind of really being day to day on the wing, working with you know fathers that were due to be released, and then with their families and children as well. And it was really, mm-hmm. um, at that point, families and family relationships were seen as very fluffy, as not you know a key mm-hmm. part of rehabilitation. And actually, I'm really yeah. pleased that now with the farmer reports and a much you know, greater focus on the real value and importance of. Uh, mm-hmm families um, and the needs of families as well and the needs of, of, of children in prison so I think that has had a big shift mm. since I started doing that work um, yeah. to then working with women in prison so I set up a project called Reunite which was for mothers that were in prison um, you know as they were leaving prison and all those sort of influences sort of then it's really good to be able to sort of pull what, together all those different strands, all those different threads mm. of the system that I've kind of been able to see from a practitioner's point of view um, to then come together and, and think how do you actually influence and change and change mm. the system. Yeah. And I know that you, you're a big fan of gap years and you've taken some time out of work, but also been doing some, some work abroad as well. And the, the time you travelled around Europe and the United States researching prison university partnerships. I'd love to hear a little bit about that and whether that that's a uh, yeah. Something well, my that two sticks my two my... passions are, are criminal justice and travel. <laughs> so yeah. uh, wherever possible, I try to to merge the two. And uh, mm. you know, even on if I go on holiday, I'll have to go and <laughs> visit a, a you know a prison. Um, yeah. Uh, and you know, you're to, not the only to... one with us. <laughs> um, I think there's yeah, a special group of us very exactly the geeks the, prison the... <laughs> prison geeks yeah prison yeah geeks. yeah uh, I'm not sure I mean the reason I have done that is really valuable to understand what happens in other countries and you know, they've got similar challenges and you know mm. how different people resu- you know do solutions I mean when I was in Denmark, you know, walking into a prison and seeing mobile phones, you know, that prisoners mm. have got, or the access to the internet, and thinking, well, the world hasn't caved in, you know, that you know, actually, this yeah. is possible because mm. I think sometimes when we work so much in our own country and just seeing the same thing, you can your ability to reimagine what yeah. other things look like um, just by the sense of being in it year after year, mm. you can end up stopping being able to imagine what different looks like, and I think that's yeah. why travel is so important because it 
it shows you where we have progressed, <laughs> you know, where things are, you know, are behind us, but also it shows Definitely. where we where we could go and what what could be reimagined. Yeah, I, I think even that is such a good example with the with the mobile phones because I don't know if you ever had this, but I for for literally about two years after I finished working at Wormwood Scrubs, I still had these re- reoccurring nightmares that I'd accidentally taken my own mobile phone into <laughs> the prison and the security department had obliterated me on the spot. And there's such there's such a sort of intense feeling about the impossibility of of that happening. It's so it's so hard to to think if you work in such an environment where there's such such complete um, impossibility of, of something like a mobile phone in a prison so people can contact their family. The idea of, you know, using that idea from, from elsewhere just seems like this is a change that could never happen. Yeah. Um, but then to I see think... places where that do do that and have made it work is you know, really refreshing. Absolutely. And I think what's, you know, what's been really interesting about the last three months as well is actually, you know, some of the positive things that have happened, you know, in weeks that could have taken years before and, and technology mm. is one of those and I, I wrote a report yeah. back in 2013 when I was at Prisoners Education Trust in, in partnership with Prison Reform Trust called Through the Gateway and it was all around technology for education, technology for family contact and technology for preparing for release and resettlement and it's still as valid today as it was in, mm. in 2013 and yet yesterday mm. there was an announcement <clears throat> about you know sort of, um, going to be investment into you know digital technology mm. um in prisons yeah. you know hopefully around learning obviously the devil's always in the detail with these things but of course yeah. in a sense actually you've just got to be on the lookout for these sort of win i guess sort of windows opportunity and say we know it works this is the examples where it's happened elsewhere this is what it could be used for uh, this mm. is the potential of it um and and then make sure that have happened but it can take a long time it, it can feel like the policy around things can, can take yeah. it can suddenly shift and suddenly yeah. you, can, you can get a bit of opportunity where it, where it shifts in the right direction yeah yeah and um so is there anything else that, that came out of that sticks out in your mind from your time around the united states or anywhere else in europe that that uh, sticks in your mind as something that you'd, you'd like to see implemented in the uk yeah i mean i think the, the one thing that I, and I went to look at prison university partnerships um, mm. and that was because when I was at Prisoners Education Trust, uh, they supported people with distance learning um, right up to sort of open university degree level. And I had the, the privilege of meeting many, many people who had studied despite not having access to the Internet, despite mm. all of the having a library yeah. or any of the things that you was, you know, who were, you know, learning, you know, in prison and, 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 and in degrees. Um, and or who wanted to study for a degree after release from prison. And in the UK, there started to be more prison university partnerships where you know, universities would have uh, students go in rather than as a, a tour or a visit in that kind of very zoo-like way of this is what a prison yeah, is, yeah. actually doing something different and saying actually to be treated as equals and have you know learners in that classroom, whether they're learners from the university or learners from the prison, treated as equals all learning together at a, a higher education level. Mm. And I'd been involved in setting up uh, one of those partnerships with uh, HMP YOI ISIS um, mm-hmm. in London, which had majority young adult uh, prisoners, so between 18 and 25, whose peers, you know, in the community would be at that kind of university mm. age. And we set up a project with the Goldsmiths University, an open book uh, programme at Goldsmiths University. And actually it's still running today and I went back a few months ago before lockdown to be an assessor on one of the projects that they'd done 
Mm. And they've had great success in supporting people who maybe never thought that university was for them, um, but actually realised that it, it, it was and it could be. And then um, with the right support, they actually mm-hmm. could um, go to university and have a completely different you know, sort of path in life mm. um, that they'd, they'd thought. And that's what they'd gone to America to see. And that's what, in America, you know, they've been doing this for many years. And, I mean, it, it was what was fascinating in America, actually, is that I was in prisons until sort of often 10 o'clock at night um, mm. in California. And it would be buzzing. And they'd have, you know, whether it was these university projects where they'd have lecturers coming and do lectures, whether it was pause for progress, so kind of training, you know, um, mm-hmm. dogs, whether it was... Uh, debating skills or speaking a whole range of activities and I sort of said wow this is really strange when I worked at Scrubs everything was kind of locked down from like four o'clock and everything stopped people even had their breakfast given to them yeah exactly (laughs) they've probably eaten it already (laughs) want to come in and volunteer their skills you know to us in the evenings and it just blew my mind slightly that actually there was this whole evening program of really positive activities. Mm. I mean, you don't really go, you think you go to the States to learn anything good. And there's lots that's wrong with the US prison system, of course. But that was one of the things I sort of took away again about actually how we see things. And their pipelines through from prison to university are really well established. Um, And I met Mm. huge numbers of people that had gone on. And actually they were, what really excited me was they were actually leading the reform agenda, the policy change agenda. They were the ones in positions of you know of mm. leadership and of influence um and they'd sort of come through that route so that's what really sort of excited me about um, what yeah. I saw in the states yeah yeah that sounds really interesting and I, I want to specifically ask you about sort of how cga is valuing lived experience and and know that there's a, a report that we're going to speak about and you've kindly um recorded a clip about but there's another report that that uh, you've released recently that I'd like for us to talk about, and that's about the McPherson report 20 years on. And so I, I you know, I, I know you're very active on Twitter, so I can see that you've been holding lots of meetings recently with lots of different groups um, to look into all different aspects of equality. And so, yeah, I just wondered what, what you'd like to say about the McPherson report 20 years on. So maybe you could just outline what it was two decades ago and, and, and where we are right now. So, I mean, the McPherson report is actually, so it's sort of 21 years since the McPherson mm. report. And that was a report ordered by the then Home Secretary Straw as an inquiry into the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the subsequent mm-hmm. handling of his case by the police. Um, one of the key findings of the inquiry was that the investigation um, into Stephen's death was um, you know, marred by, the, by institutional racism. And it showed that it was not just the case of a few bad apples but actually there was mm. systemic racism within policing. And many, therefore, of the recommendations in that first report related to improving equality um, and scrutiny and improving race relations between the police and particularly the black community. And mm. so the Home Affairs Select Committee recently launched an inquiry um, looking at the McPherson report 21 years on, and mm. in particular wanted people to submit evidence looking specifically at policing over the last 12 months, so, uh, so we responded to that inquiry, and in our submission, we obviously recognised the efforts to try to address these issues uh, since the mm. report. But crucially, many challenges remain. Um, you know, ethnic and racial disproportionality in the use of police powers, such as stop and search, and police use of force, continues. 
Um, mm. And this needs to be tackled urgently. And, and we set out in our submission some recommendations around that. I mean, there has been some progress in recent years. We've one of our fantastic member organisations called Another Night Sisterhood, who's based in Croydon. You know, they've been working in the last few years, you know, helping police build positive relationships with the community through sort of forums to have these uncomfortable conversations. They've been providing cultural competence training with police. But unfortunately, a lot of the progress made is starting to go backwards. And, and that's what we want to highlight mm. in this report, that we urgently need to stop this backwards trend. Hmm. And what do you what do you actually mean when you say things have gone backwards? So the use of stop and search was actually decreasing from uh, 2009 up until 2018. But during that time, disproportionality in its use against black people increased. And black people are now nine times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people. Um, but right. from 2018, the figures show that this decline in stop and search is actually slowing. And in some areas, such as London, it's actually reversing. And one particularly worrying trend that we have seen is an increase in the use of a specific police power, which is mm. under Section 60 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act. And basically, yeah. this doesn't require an officer to give reasonable grounds for suspicion to stop someone if Section 60 order is in place in that area. Mm. And essentially what happened in March, March last year, um, we were very concerned because the Home Office announced pilot measures. Previously right. to this, sort of all forces in England and Wales had committed to ensure that only senior officers could authorise these searches if they reasonably believe that violence will occur in a defined area. Mm. But the pilot allowed officers of a lower rank, so better rank, to authorise them and also lowered the threshold to a reasonable belief that violence may occur. So essentially they ran this pilot for five months in seven police force mm. areas. And then in August last year, they rolled it out across the country, despite there being no evaluation of the pilot or consultation with the public or those impacted. Um, right. And what we know is that um, from Section 60s yeah, that we've done previously, that actually black people are 40 times more likely to be stopped That's and searched under Section 60 powers. It's incredible. But despite this evidence, you know, this pilot was rolled out mm. nationally, which was very worrying. So that's and where, did I mean, the Home Office release any kind of reason for why they would reduce this kind of burden of proof or whether, um, for the reason why they would allow lower ranking officers to now make those kind of decisions? So they said that the reason was to give police forces necessary powers to tackle violent crime. But we know that stop and search is actually a very blunt tool. The reliance on stop mm. and search as a tool to reduce crime, particularly knife crime, is not supported by the evidence. So Home Office's own research uh, into large increases in stop and search, which happened in 2008, mm. actually showed no discernible crime reducing effects. And yeah. research published by the College of Policing concluded there was only limited evidence of a deterrent effect of, of stop and search. And that's limited, you know, a particular time as well so despite and also we know that actually despite an increase in section 60 searches over 2018 to 2019 um i think there was over 13,000 searches under section 60 in that time um, but only 161 which was 1.2 percent led to an arrest for offensive weapons so very very tiny right. percentage and i think what is also important to think about in this sort of 
uh, equation, balancing up equation is around the negative mm. effects of an over-reliance and stop and search, which also has to be considered. So mm. back in 2017, just before I came to the CJA, uh, the CJA published a report called No Respect, which uh, essentially kind of uh, spoke to young black men with first-hand experience of stop and search. And they described how they felt harassed and targeted, provoked and violated, and that it actually can be a really traumatic experience and you know if this is your first if the first contact with police is negative we know that this could have a huge impact on trust and confidence not just in the police Mm -hmm. but actually the whole criminal justice system system, as the Lamy review highlighted and it can also have this sort of ripple effect where you know people no longer feel comfortable to go to police as a witness or a, a victim of crime so um you know one of the impacts you know that the youth violence commission has recently published a report showing that this sort of overuse of stop and search and the disproportionate use of stop and search can create a wall of silence when police are actually trying to investigate mm. crimes. You know, they, they need information for intelligence to to try and solve crimes. So if there's this wall of silence, it can actually prevent crimes from being resolved. Um, we also held last year, in partnership with the Race Disparity Team and the MOJ, a roundtable focused on Black, Asian and minority ethnic victims of crime. And what right. was described in that roundtable was actually a lack of trust and confidence in the police, meaning that if someone was a victim of crime, they were less likely to go to the police. Yeah. So sort of have to weigh up all these you know, different um, bits and looking at actually some of the negative impacts that it stop and search mm. can have. Um, I was actually part of a Zoom meeting held by another Nigel sisterhood. And mm. there was a lot of mums there of kind of black and mixed race boys and they described that stop and search had become almost like a rite of passage for their yeah. sons, which you know yeah. is, is just not the sort of rite of passage that we want to see. Um, they also spoke about having the talk with their sons about stop and search. And I've actually recently had the talk with my 15-year-old nephew, who's mixed race. So mm. explaining to him you know, the different powers the police have, what he should do, how he should respond. And we shouldn't have to have those discussions. Um, yeah. You know, and I think I think to myself, I've got a five-year-old son who's who's mixed race. And I think to myself, if I can do anything in this role, it's working to ensure that yeah, this isn't a right passage um, for him when he's 15. Um, mm-hmm. So so that's sort of you know, one important point, I guess, of these powers as well that we re- mentioned in yeah. the in the first select committee response was the importance of scrutiny and accountability, um, which is one of the kind of systemic issues that CJ is looking at. Because obviously where you have these powers, wherever it is in the criminal justice system, there needs to be effective scrutiny and accountability. Um, mm. But I mean, one positive thing that has happened, <laughs> I can report, um, okay. is that yeah. as a result of our work, the, the College of Policing um, have actually been working to produce guidance on effective community scrutiny, which we hope will be out soon. Um, so basically, community scrutiny of stop and search are kind of panels, local panels, right, local okay. volunteers that scrutinise yeah. the use. But unfortunately, there's no guidance at the moment about how those panels should be set up, what data mm. they should have access to, what training they should have, the makeup of those groups, how independent mm. they are. So we found pockets of good practice around the country when we mapped them. But we mm. also found that many panels weren't getting access to the data that they needed. Um, Mm. You know, I've been looking 
since coming to the CJA for a couple of years now at this issue of stop and search and looking at stop and search data and it's and it's complicated so you need the right training you need to understand mm. this and be able to challenge you also need police forces that are willing to take on board that critique and to say okay yeah that, that wasn't good enough you know we we need to take some action um so it's, yeah, it's those... no i just wanted to say yeah, yeah also once those committees have been formed and and they produce results it's really important then that they then are appreciated and something is done as a result of them rather than it just becomes absolutely a that sits on a on a shelf and and the, the serious you know the the david lamry review actually you know, gives an example really good example and, and we in our you know um report called stop and scrutinize as well which was you know showed absolutely that there was after these meetings that the minutes were published, mm. that, you know, there was action plans, that there was a, yeah. you know, some sort of rag rating. So if, you know, if, if mm -hmm. things kept happening, then yeah. you know, it could be escalated at higher levels. Yeah. It was, you know, really transparent. And that's what we want to see. But we, the College of Policing Guidance is a good start, but it's still voluntary. You know, we want it to mm. be mandatory that, you know, yeah. to really kind of um, ensure that stop scrutiny, you know, that scrutiny and accountability of these powers is, yeah. is effective. Yeah. And I guess the final thing I just wanted to say on this as well, I guess, is coming back to that question about tackling violent crime, is mm. that actually what we know works in tackling violent crime is actually what we're seeing in the kind of the, the setup of the violence reduction units at the moment and is through multi-agency, kind of trauma-informed, holistic approaches to tackling the root causes, mm. you know, mm. of violent crime. I mean, I, through what's called like a public health approach, so... For me, that's where the focus and the investment should be. I mean, I worked, I think I mentioned that um, I worked in Brixton as a youth worker, I was sort of managing a youth project, and it was with kids that were between 8 to 13 and at risk of being excluded from school, at risk of you know, getting involved in the, being caught up in the criminal justice system. And it was a fantastic project. And we had youth workers that had grown up on the estate that had brilliant rapport with these young people who had often experienced a lot of trauma. Um, and we saw crime decreased significantly on the estate in the time that we were working there which was amazing um, right, we, yeah. we opened you know we exposed them to lots of different opportunities and experiences both mm -hmm. in their local area and um, you know outside of, of London um, but I'll never forget the day when I had to tell the kids that the funding had been cut from our mm -hmm. project a year into it and it was it was really heartbreaking because this was the place their place of safety this was their place where mm -hmm. they um, you know had built up a rapport with these workers um, and it was devastating. And so, you know, I think we have to invest in these programmes, not just as a short term fix, but in the long term, if we really want to reduce violence rather than scooping more people up into the stream of the criminal justice system. Um, that yeah, uh, well, I just want to ask you about because things like scrutiny and accountability, of course, in incredibly important. And these aren't necessarily new concepts. And like, say, the McPherson report is 21 years ago now, and the David Larimer report had many um, recommendations as well. And now we know that the government have now commissioned a new uh, investigation into racism. And so are you detecting a lot of frustration between organisations that are saying, look, these, there are already lots of recommendations here and why aren't we implementing them? And I guess alongside that, that I want to ask you about is, despite the fact that we see lots of evidence against stop and search and how it is disproportionately used against black groups in our society 
the sort of the narrative for it being something that works to prevent knife crime or other kind of crimes still exists and still really powerful and so how do we how do we i mean how do you think we can change the narrative so that the average voter isn't going to vote for policies that say yes we want to stop and search and these kind of punitive measures and it's a huge question and i'm not expecting you to give me the answer on it but I'd, I'd, you know i'd be really interested to know what your thoughts are around yeah. it so yeah no, <laughs> no pressure um, but pressure okay so on your first point about you know to now sort of put them into action. I mean, one of the things that we're doing at the CJA on one of those kind of more systemic actions that was talked about in, in the LAMI review and we want mm. to see a much greater focus on is about um, racial diversity within the criminal justice workforce, whether that's through from policing, through to yeah. our judges, through to prison officers, uh, through to the actually the voluntary sector itself, you know, and, and that's been talked about for a while and there are people working really hard to try and make that happen but on the flip side then you've got decreasing trust and confidence things around some mm. sorts of things around you know that relationship actually then fights against trying to recruit more people you know into the force or, or into these these roles so we've really mm. got to tackle um the sort of culture and you know make it an inclusive workplace for um for people so we held an event uh, a few weeks ago with the Secretary of State Robert Buckland and with David Lammy, who is now the Shadow Secretary of State for Justice, mm-hmm. as well as six speakers from policing, CPS, from uh, the judiciary, from uh, the legal profession, all kind of talking about how we can work together as a whole system, mm. you know, and we need a real kind of focus on this sort of whole system strategic approach to really changing the dynamics of our criminal justice system to make it inclusive to have cultural competence and understanding to have much greater diversity of you know of experience of cultures of backgrounds um both in terms of race but also actually in terms of lived experience as well which we'll talk about when mm. within report so it's really yeah that's a really fundamental way of changing the whole culture um of our criminal justice system and mm. who makes decisions and who you know who is, is is sort of part of that system in terms of your other point about the narrative around stop the search and around violence you know mm. general i'm really really interested in public opinion and how it's one i know that you've interviewed uh penelope gibb for this mm. uh, podcast yeah. as well and, and i yeah. i sit on her advisory group for her around the sort of reframing justice and i'm a real I'm a big fan about thinking about how we again tackle this other sort of systemic issue, which is around public knowledge and understanding um, yeah. about criminal justice. One of the things that CJA we do is we have an annual um, award. So we have uh, we celebrate outstanding organisations and individuals in the system. Mm. But what we also have is we have a media awards. And so last year, for the first time, we opened this up to. Uh, sort of nominations for people to nominate themselves or to nominate others and we had a fantastic response and the we brought together people with lived experience journalists uh, and other kind of communications experts mm. to essentially put together some criteria of what does good criminal justice reporting look like mm. and it's things like actually being quite constructive and you know not labeling um, to give a more context to an individual story to be solution mm. focused so rather than just saying oh it's all a crisis yeah. These are some of the solutions. So, okay, stop. You know, we don't want to see some search. What's the alternatives? What's the the context around? You know, what could be done instead? 
Mm. Um, you know, what are the positive things that we should be investing in um, mm. to tackle violence rather than um, you know, just relying on this very blunt instrument of stop and search, yeah. which we know isn't effective. And, and so that's what we want to try and do. We want to sort of encourage <laughs> journalists and the media to report in this way about criminal justice. And so we recognise people that are doing this, and there is a growing mm. movement of journalists actually are thinking these things through and, and thinking more clearly about how they report on the on criminal justice issues. So we want to kind mm. of really build on that movement. Uh, so we're actually at the moment um, working on a report called What Does Good Criminal Justice Reporting Look Like? And right. we're working with journalists on that, with people with experience, um, and build this sort of momentum around how criminal justice should be reported mm. better. Um, and actually, interestingly, well, one of our members' meetings recently, we had Lib Peck, who's the director of the London Violence Reduction Unit. And part of their strategy, interestingly enough, has got a whole strand about narratives about media. Um, so, so she's really interested as well, thinking about how the narratives of media, uh, of, of violence, play out in terms of how the public think we should respond to them. Mm. Um, you know, even down to things like police tweeting images of knives, for example. You know, actually, it can have the opposite effect of, of young people then feeling that there is something to be scared of on their streets, and, and so right. it can have the opposite yeah. impact. And uh, you know, how we talk about violence with with the public is really important so um so i hope through our media awards we can play a small part um, mm. in helping to yeah. change that sort of public narrative and, and bring journalists on board with us to help to champion that as well some more carrot than stick in the approach to get yeah. them to, to write sort of broader more holistic stories Absolutely. Well, I mean, there's um, so Mind, the mental health charity, have a have an awards um, and they've been running for it for over a decade. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at how mental health is reported, you know, obviously there's still, you know, um, sort of bad examples. But I think generally mm. there has been a change of, of narrative and public yeah. understanding about mental yeah. health, mental health issues, how mental health is reported in the media. Um, and so... It's not to say that that awards is is the reason only reason for that, but I think it's it's part of the story. Yeah. I mean, actually, if you look at we're introducing a documentary award this year because I think documentaries are a really mm. good way on TV of getting under the skin of an issue a bit more mm. and giving people mm. a bit of context. Um, and there's been some actually some really good documentaries already this year. Hence, we kind of opened up this new category. So there oh, was great, a great yeah. one with Gareth Malone, like the choir, you know, going into a um, Aylesbury you know, sort of mm. prison with young adults. And yeah. I saw a documentary about Aylesbury years ago when I worked at Prisoners Education Trust and I'd gone into Aylesbury and I'd sat in on a user voice council. So user voice mm-hmm. are a fantastic charity that um, yeah. these people lived experience to help um, get the voices of you know, people in prison to be heard through prison councils. And they had a fantastic prison council. And the young men that sat on that council with the governor were really um, articulate, had some fantastic ideas how to improve education, how to improve, you know, family relationships and had a really good relationship with the governor to try and make that happen. And they were so excited to tell me, they said, Nina, mm. we've had, you know, last week we had the film cameras in and they were recording this prison council. You know, we're really looking forward to this being shown. And actually then when I watched the documentary a few months later, it was a two-parter. Mm. The first part was only showing kind of fights on the wing. And then the second part, I thought, well, maybe the second part will show the positive stuff. And the second part showed exactly the same. And there was no footage of this really positive stuff that was going on. 
because and it was so frustrating and so devastating for those young men mm. that you know were playing a positive role that were you know and the governor you know also that was trying to do something positive that that yeah. wasn't shown to members of the public um and so actually to have then a, a documentary this year that did help to unpick some of the issues about why these young you know young adults were um yeah. in what some of the issues were um, there was a great documentary this year about diversion from custody, actually, about mm. do we always need to prosecute people? Or actually, at that early point, if we can divert people and offer people services and support, um, you can actually have a much better impact. So I think that sort of reporting um, mm. and those sort of documentaries are really valuable for the general public to just yeah. understand the system better and understand some of the better options and alternatives yeah, and um, I think even for people there. working in the system as well, because you know, you know, you hear the phrase "representation matters." It gets used all over the place now, but there, it can be really powerful to see where there has been positive work that's been going on, and you can see, oh, there is a, there is a chance for this to to make a difference, rather than any time you do try and, and make an effort that it just gets ignored or or passed over and you just repeatedly see the negative side. And yeah, I mean, I could ask you lots of questions about, about this and I, 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 we need to move on to the, to the next report, but I really encourage people to, to look up the, um, the report you've put out, which is the McPherson report 20 years on, and I'll put a link in the show notes to this. And there's more stuff that we haven't talked about in terms of um, police use of force and uh, lots of other elements in there. So I, I recommend people do that. But yes, there is a there's another report that's out recently, which is focused on insights from people with lived experience um, working to improve the criminal justice system. And you've kindly recorded a clip from that. So I'm going to play that in a second. But before um, before I do play that, is there anything in terms of the context of where this report came from that you'd like to, to mention? Yeah. So as I talked about after coming back from the States, um, I was really inspired by how they, you know, they have this phrase, nothing about us without us, um, that's really Mm. used over there. And I kind of thought, actually, I guess where we're at in the UK, or where I see we're at, is that we've kind of, we've moved the dial on people understanding that service user involvement, as it's called, is something Mm -hmm. that's important, that we should be listening to voices of people with with experience. But just this feeling that there was this sense that, it wasn't just about hearing people's voices or their story or mm. having people work in uh, volunteering roles, although that is often a really good stepping stone. Mm. But actually, there was I just had a real sense that there was um, something preventing people from being able to actually then progress into being part of the criminal justice workforce, whether in frontline roles, you know, and being paid for them or actually also most importantly you know being part of the design of systems of influencing policy of research of all the different you know being the civil servant that design the policy being you know involved in this just system in all sorts of different roles and and ways and i just felt that um this was something that was going to that could bring big kind of system change Mm -hmm. um in terms of the diversity of our of our workforce more broadly so we also want to kind of think uh, one of the other things that we're hoping to do as the CJA is to uh, set up some sort of leadership type program uh, for people with lived experience who want to, um, who may be working in the, the system at the moment, but they want mm-hmm. to go on to sort of influence 
policy to set up their own organizations to be kind of leaders um, in the criminal justice field. And that's what I saw in the States, but I didn't just want to kind of take a model that I saw in the States and sort of plonk it over here. Yeah. And actually for me, it's not just about being a different system, it's we've got different needs, different issues. So this report was really the first stepping stone because this really hasn't been researched. There's there's just mm. it's really undervalued, it's really under researched. What are the experiences of people that have been directly impacted by the criminal mm -hmm. justice system? I mean, although this report focuses actually on people that have got lived experience of being in prison, we at the CGA, we take a much broader view of the experience that actually it could also be whether you've got you know, a family member or the mm -hmm. victim of crime or that you have in some way been directly impacted by yeah. the criminal justice system and you, and you bring that sort of lived experience to the table. Great. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll play that clip now and I've got some questions for you right afterwards. Well-supported people with lived experience can be powerful. We need to nurture them. This is a stepping stone to changing the whole penal system. That's a quote from a report that we launched last year called Change From Within. It features insights from people with lived experience working to improve the criminal justice system. Our criminal justice system is under pressure. More than ever, the system needs fresh, innovative and systemic solutions to make it fairer and more effective. The meaningful inclusion of people with lived experience in the criminal justice workforce, not just in voluntary and consultative roles, but paid employees, influencers and leaders, is crucial. People with lived experience can provide enormous benefit to organisations working in the criminal justice sector. Their involvement in designing, delivering and managing services as well as influencing policy and practice, remains an underexplored and undervalued area. Involving people with lived experience in consultation and volunteering, while remaining valuable, runs the risk of becoming tokenistic without clear pathways to paid employment and progression routes to leadership and influencing roles. For example, we know that 53% of the criminal justice voluntary sector have service users as volunteers but only 29% recruit service users as paid employees. People with lived experience often make resilient, highly motivated, empathic, knowledgeable employees, managers and leaders who can effectively engage service users, make credible links with communities and provide fresh thinking, ideas and solutions. But the Change Within report found that people with lived experience face a range of structural, systemic and cultural barriers to employment in the criminal justice sector. These range from practical barriers such as onerous and opaque vetting procedures to workplace cultures and environments that don't effectively support them to achieve their full potential. The report was written by George, who was on release on temporary licence. He was supported by our lived experience expert group who advised on methodology, analysis and recommendations. One of our ex-group members, Paula Harriet, Head of Prisoner Engagement at the Prison Reform Trust, commented about the report. She said, This report sets out a clear case for the future of the criminal justice workforce, a workforce that integrates and accepts the insights of those they seek to serve and welcomes them both as leaders and employees. People with convictions have always found a way to contribute to the work of the sector, often setting up their own organisations in response to the barriers they have faced. 
but it is time to change the diversity of the criminal justice workforce and seek to ensure it is more representative of those it serves and embraces the challenge and the human wisdom that they bring with them. Okay, thanks for that clip. Yeah, really interesting. And um, yeah, I really encourage people to to read the report, which again, I'll put the link to this report as well in, in the show notes. But I want to ask you a little bit about some of the things you, you mentioned in terms of holding people back in, in the workforce, in terms of vetting procedures, workplace cultures. I'm sure people listening could have a guess at what those might be, but could you just say a little bit about the reality of, of those kind of things? Absolutely. So, I mean, vetting was a really big barrier, actually, a very sort of practical barrier that many people came up against. And interestingly, when we launched this report, we had uh, a panel discussion that was uh, chaired by a guy called Darren, who worked for the Care Leavers Association. Mm-hmm. And he sits on our lived experience expert group and has been going in and out of prisons, doing work, you know, supporting people who've you know um, leaving care in prisons for about mm-hmm. 15 years. Um, and he was in prison himself and goes in and does fantastic work and actually on the day of launching our report he just got rejected through a vetting process to go and work in one of the prisons despite having 15 years of experience mm. of, of doing really positive work and this is not you know he's not the only one there's you know you just hear the story again and again and yeah for those people that know if you want to go and work in prisons you have to go through a normal vetting process so like you and i did when, when we went to prisons where they check your background they check um about you and of course if you've you know, been in prison before you're going to fail that first check mm. but there is um uh, governors can override that decision on a case-by-case basis the difficulty is because it rides them with individual governors uh it then depends on who that governor is and yeah. their uh perceptions often of risk um and looking at someone's maybe list of uh you know uh, convictions without meeting the individual without understanding what's happened since then and what the work mm-hmm. they've been doing now um can often lead to people then being rejected and not able to to uh go and do that work in prisons and we had an event actually last week where we had three guys who work in prisons and probation that had all got lived experience had all been mm-hmm. in prison and you know one of them described how one of the you know, people in prison said to him it's like you melt the walls and I just thought that was such a kind of beautiful saying, the sense that mm. that is what can happen in terms of people with lived experience going in. It's, it's seeing somebody that has walked, you know, to some extent in, you know, in your footsteps that knows mm. what's happening that, you know, can engage. And so the, the work is so powerful that people can do when they go in to work in prisons. And this vetting process, um, again, it comes back to that scrutiny and accountability. There's no real accountability about these decisions that are being made. It's not transparent. Mm. People often get rejected without understanding what the reasons is. They often don't get to have a face-to-face chat with the person making that decision. It's very unclear why they've been rejected. They could when they've been working in other prisons, Mm. um, and they're also only able to get this um, pass for one year, and they have to reapply for it each year. Whereas when we did it, you know, anyone else going in. Um, you're able to use it over multiple prisons and over a longer period of time, I think it's three years, whereas they have to apply to each individual prison to get one of these Mm. passes. And also every year they have to to reapply for them. And so, yeah, it's a 
it's a massive barrier and something that really needs um, mm. to be looking at. And we are having discussions now with uh, the Ministry of Justice that are looking at, at vetting. Um, yeah. Because it, it's, there's just a lack of transparency. And it, it's, it's a barrier that just doesn't need to be there. Um, and also, just then when you get rejected from the prison, just the impact that that can have on an individual that's actually you know, yeah. made so many positive steps might have done a degree, might have done training, might have you know got to the point where you're wanting to go back in um, and work and do something positive and then to be rejected without any reason yeah. um, can have a really big personal impact on that individual yeah. as well. Um, and of course, you know, you know, with anything, with anybody coming in, there's, of course, there needs to be a system there, but it's just a lack of transparency and the fact mm. that there's this very different system um, for uh, people with convictions than there is for, for other people. So it's a really big area. Mm. Um, that we want that to be looked at yeah and i know you had a, a meeting with a, with lots of different groups recently on this topic how did the how did the meeting go and, and was it a, a small one with a few people or was there lots of organizations no there was lots of so we had um three people with lived experience working in prisons and probation talking mm. about their experiences and what was really interesting for me as well was that there was someone who was a probation officer who i've actually known for a number of you know many years since my time at Prisons Education Trust. And he sort of hadn't really talked very openly about the fact that he's got lived experience. Um, mm. He now manages a whole restorative justice um, for Wales within you know, um, probation and, and doing some fan- yeah, really fantastic work. And what was really great about the comments that came through and the emails that I've had since about that event was that you had other probation officers uh, in on this webinar um, who contacted us afterwards saying, I've also got lived experience and I haven't told any of my colleagues or mm. um, it's been this sort of big secret. Um, mm. And I've experienced some different, you know, kind of, you know, this, he, he discussed about this sort of workplace culture of how other probation officers might sometimes talk about their service users and their clients right. and, yeah. and how uncomfortable that can be actually in terms of you know, the language that's used or or the sense of, oh, well, actually that was, that was me. And what was really heartbreaking mm. was actually that he described about six months after he became a probation officer, he was in the staff-only area of the probation office, and he came across a, a, his former probation officer that had been his probation officer when he'd just come out of custody. Yeah. And the probation officer said to him, what are you doing here? You know, why are you hmm. in this in the building? And so he got out his pass and kind of proudly said, mm. actually, I'm a probation officer and I work yeah. here. You know, he'd volunteered for a year at the probation service. He'd done a degree. He'd jumped through every hoop, you know. And rather than what you'd expect the response was, is, you know, wow, fantastic, congratulations, that's great, I'm really proud of you. Actually, the response was, there wasn't a response, and he kind of just walked off and didn't say anything. And so the guy felt like, oh, you know, this is really not something I should be telling people about or or talking to my colleagues about. Um, Mm. But actually, there was someone then on the webinar who's, you know, who wanted to make contact with him to say, I've got the same experience. And actually, I, the same as you, I think we should probation service really should be um doing a hell of a lot more to Mm. encourage people with an experience and supporting people who are in all sorts of voluntary roles whether it's in prisons as samaritans as peer workers as as, um, people who do shannon trust teaching people to read all these sort of peer roles or peer advisors um into if they want to um Mm. into actually working in the service because he said the reason why i wanted to do it is he said i felt Actually, I could do a much better job. Yeah. <laughs> the different person's <laughs> right. so okay. the other side of the Very desk. And, 
And I yeah. feel like, you know, it's not that he tells every, you know, his um, mm. people that he supervises that he, you know, was in prison, but he has an understanding, you yeah. know, and an empathy um, and a passion to, you know, to really believe in their change and wanting to support them and to go the extra mile for them. Mm. Um, but he felt he could bring to the role. And I think many other people could bring to the role. So, yeah. um, so that was really great. And we've also had people since like the inspector of probation, we've had HMPPS all getting in contact saying, what more can we do to, mm. to support this pathway through, yeah. which is fantastic. And that's the reason why we, we hold these events and get this discussion going. Is, that's really um, good to hear and because it looks like probation going through another a new change now and so hopefully you know this this rupture in in their process will can can form in something bigger and stronger including this and i just want to ask you because this i feel a bit of a, there's a there's kind of a tension in when we're talking about people with lived experience and really valuing like you've just given such great examples of of how it can be valued um but at the same time, those people are not wanting to constantly being defined by an incident that may have happened years ago. They don't really want to be reminded about. And so is there some kind of tensions where we are, you know, focusing so much on the fact that they have walked a particular path? And actually, that some people just want to move on from that. I don't know, I, I don't know what question I'm trying to form, but I'm just, I, I, I feel some kind of tension around that. Is that something that gets explored in these groups and, and what are your thoughts around that? Absolutely. I mean, literally, we were talking about this in, in our virtual couple meeting this morning. Actually. Right, OK. <laughs> and I think it's really, really important because I think there's a real tendency to want to sort of label and put people in a box. Exactly. Um, yeah, and that yeah. this is your, you know, you're in the lived experience box. And, and actually, this is what people, you know, talked about in the page within report that, you know, interviewed of being seen as you're one of them as mm. you know and and in our event last week you know brendan one of the guys said sometimes when he discloses that he's been in prison he'd been having a conversation with someone for half an hour as a professional as he is mm. and then if he discloses that he was in prison he said you can almost see it in people's eyes the change in, you know, the, the, the perception yeah. you know of, of him yeah. so there's a really big piece of work to be done around that but absolutely i think it's it's untangling this and it's 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 looking at kind of how um it's moving on from i think where we've got stuck into is often about people just telling their story or their individual story and there's there's a fantastic woman called Balbeet Sandu who's done some really great work on lived experience leadership um mm. and i've drawn on you know we kind of drawn heavily in the report and I, I kind of think she's she's one of the leading uh sort of experts in this particularly she comes from um looking at this from a leaving care experts by experience kind of perspective, but actually mm. very similar findings in our report and criminal justice as, as, as her report more broadly on social justice. And she talks about kind of activating that lived experience um, into this sort of lived expertise and in terms of leadership. Um, and many people who, you know, have been impacted by a system um, do want to try and change the system, not mm. necessarily by doing that thing of just telling your own story but in a more yeah. fundamental way but also people want to move on and I think what came out of the report as well is that often people will be employed in these sort of peer roles where you're kind of doing peer-to-peer -peer engagement that frontline work mm -hmm. but actually then there seems to be a barrier in terms of moving people from peer roles into managerial roles or influencing mm -hmm. roles or leadership roles or you know research roles or sort of something where actually it's not about your experience you know um 
using that experience to engage someone, but actually yeah. more fundamentally being able to kind of use you know, your sort of experience in a more strategic, um, mm. sort of structural way. Um, and so there's sort of some barriers in that happening. Yeah. Otherwise, people can get sort of just stuck stuck in those roles. And absolutely, and there's going to be many people who, you know, don't want to be involved in the criminal justice system at all and want to go and work in any other sector, which is fantastic and absolutely should do. But, uh, but there are a group of people who want to, who've seen how the system is broken and mm. want to try to fix it for others that come behind them, for people, you know, that will come up behind them. Yeah. For those people, we then need to ensure that there's the pathways, the networks, the support, the um, to make that happen. Because there's, there are people doing it, but what we found was is that people really had to take their own initiative. Mm. And it was often by chance they might have been speaking at an event, and then someone heard them speak, and they came to you know see them and support them into a role, or they were blogging or doing something very proactive on social media and someone saw it and then said oh actually why don't you think come and work for us or they make a role for them mm. but it was often by chance or by the individual really having to kind of push and advocate to get those roles yeah. rather than there being a much more kind of structured pathway um, yeah. into those sorts of roles and I think we're we're missing a trick there's talk in the report there's something called the going forward into employment scheme which is run by the cabinet office. And so there's this whole scheme at the cabinet office of you know, people with convictions or people leaving prison rather, um, trying to support them into civil service roles. Mm. And so they've supported them into roles, for example, with part of the work and pensions or the court service, and actually a couple of placements with the prison and probation ombudsman, which is great. But actually, very few, if any, within yeah. MOJ and HMPPS themselves. And mm. I think if as organisations you are trying to say to other employers you should employ people in whether it's in the construction industry or retail industry or whatever mm. other industries to try and promote people employing people with you know with with convictions then you need to do it yourself you know you need yeah. to be yeah. championing and role modelling yeah. that yourself um, and so our, there's there's um, much more that could be done with those sorts mm. of schemes to um, support people into those roles if that's what they they want to do if they want to influence change yeah in the system well it's great to hear that you, you know you are doing research into the area and hopefully more will come of that and i think it's also interesting to think about layers of sort of intersectional analysis of that group as well because i'm sure it'll be very different for a young black man who has a conviction going into that space than a middle-class white woman going into that space and you know differences but i, I wondered to have have differences in gender or race come up so far in terms of the lived experience discussions? Yeah, so there's a section in the Change Within report about that sort of intersectionality mm -hmm. and sort of yeah. double disadvantages and um, and I mean something that sort of frustrates me that um, I said went to sit on the advisory board for female offenders. So having worked mm -hmm. at women in prison and having a strong yeah, interest in, about, yeah. in, in women, about women in the criminal justice system as a sort of, you know, because they're always a, a sort of an add-on in the sense of, you know, it's a system that's a majority for, for, for men. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, we've got this women, uh, you know, the female offender strategy of, you know, which is great, but actually the board, yeah, this advisory board that I sit on is about sort of holding the government to account to, to mm -hmm. implement it. But on that board, um, you don't have anyone with lived experience in the criminal justice system, personal experience, or 
um, any uh, one from an organisation that's you know led by black and minority ethnic mm. people. So it, it, there's a real lack of diversity within that group. And so that's something that myself and others that sit in that group have been raising with the different ministers that have you know been have sat in that group about mm. representation. But it being more than just having one space. Actually, this is something more fundamental. This is about how do you genuinely um, listen to and hear the experiences of people currently going through the system and people that have that lived experience in the past as well. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of understanding um, the, mm. the specific issues. And there are many people that you know could very well be on that group, and we're hoping that that, <laughs> that they will be. But yeah, um, I think yeah. in order to you know you end up being the person on a group that says and what about yeah you know, yeah where's the equality impact assessment or and what about you know um yeah. you know having a metric for measuring disproportionality and, mm-hmm. and and it's really important to have people you know everyone around the table thinking in terms in those terms and holding you know government bodies and others to account on really putting equality and, and race diversity you know race disparity at the heart of decisions um mm. we have this we have a public sector equality duty and actually, you know, you're supposed to have a quality, these things called equality impact assessments that are done yeah. whenever yeah. there's a you know, different policy decision. But unfortunately, what tends to happen is that they're, they're sort of done last as a bit of an add-on, <laughs> possibly by the most junior person. Um, and actually, in order to really get that systemic change, they need to be the thing that's done right at the beginning yeah. alongside the design. And it, whatever you find in that equality impact assessment should influence what policy looks like at the moment yeah they're not just often not being used in that way yeah it needs to be recognized as core business and not a a nice add-on at the end like you say yeah absolutely i mean if you look at for example going back to what we were saying before around stop and searches and section 60 Mm. we pushed for the equality impact assessment of the changes to section 60 to be published Mm. which were then published which you know and the equality impact assessment essentially admits that you know this essentially is likely to be used disproportionately this is likely to impact hmm. groups disproportionately and yet and yet it still went ahead yeah. and so actually all, yeah, the other thing they've got to be is if <laughs> if the equality impact assessment finds that there's going to be disproportionate use then there should be done something to you know something done to mitigate or not go ahead with that, that policy decision um, hmm. whether that's around you know disproportionate impact on women or um, people of color it's, yeah. it's got to be much more fundamental to how policies are made. Yeah. Well, I think that nicely moves us on to the last section where I want to ask you about impact. And obviously, it's, you can't control what the government does, so I, I won't <laughs> ask you about how we how we get impact at that level. But I'm just wondering, in terms of CJA, you have such a wide remit and you know contribute in so many different areas. How do you possibly evaluate your own performance in that way? I mean, I want to ask about your personal impact in a minute but for the moment how do you evaluate cj and and how well you do as an organization um well it's really interesting so we've literally just put a, um, a commission out for our first ever sort of independent evaluation um mm-hmm. of the cj because when i uh, set up the prisoner learning alliance we um had two evaluations of that alliance because i'm just really interested about how alliances make impact how you mm. working together and like I said at the beginning, this idea of organisations being more than the collective sum of their parts. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what I want an effective alliance to be. You can have everyone working in their own bits, but actually by coming together, there should be a sort of a, a 
are greater than than some of all those parts. Um, but it is hard to uh, think about that. And so um, that's why I wanted the CJA to have an independent evaluation. And we've developed, along with our board of trustees, um, a series of theories of change about mm, our work yeah. and about why yeah. we think certain things happen. So why do we do, for example, our media awards? What's mm-hmm. the gate? We're trying to change how things are reported. We're trying, yeah, and how are we doing that? What yeah. what do we want people to think, feel, and do as a as a um, as a consequence of mm. our reports, in terms of consequence of our events, yeah. in terms of our uh, meetings? You know, whether that's our members, whether that's officials, mm. whether that's ministers, yeah. whether that's journalists. So we've we have spent some time sort of working through what we mm. think is happening. What, what yeah. there's a lot of assumptions <laughs> yeah. in that, and, and actually there yeah. might be other things going on that we're that we're not aware of. And it's not until you have an independent sort of evaluation to kind of go and speak yeah. to those different people you're trying to influence to to work out what is happening. Um, so yeah, so I'm really excited that that's going to be a journey that we go on in the next two years to yeah, work with these to. evaluators. Get you get you back when uh, when you get the results in to, to yeah, see how that's absolutely. gone. And, and most importantly, getting that interim results because I don't, I never feel with evaluations you should sort of just commission something right at the end of it oh, of because course, yeah. it it's, needs to be it's, a it's a learning yeah. process. There are going to be things that we thought might work that haven't, and or other things that we've not known. There have been hmm. sort of impacts that have happened as a result. Um, yeah. So it's trying to sort of capture as much of that as possible and then adjust hmm. what we do to to, to yeah. maximize our impact because we're a very small team that we're literally at the moment uh, sort of three full-time members of staff right, um, right and so you know we have that but i'd like us to you know grow a bit in staff mm. in order to grow our impact so um yeah it's really important to get that kind of evaluation to understand how we best do that yeah yeah okay well and now how about you personally so you know, impact is such a loaded term and people think about log frame analysis or theory of change and all this kind of stuff. Or in, what do you, I mean, what's, what is it that, that you want to achieve as part of your career? What, what drives you to, to be part of this? I mean, I'm sure that you, you work, I know you work incredible hours and you put so much effort and energy into this. So I'm sure you could find other jobs that you don't have to do that much. <laughs> but so what is it that, that you want to achieve what does impact mean to you um i think touched on a bit before having been a practitioner for many years Mm. um you you know i carry with me the stories of individuals that i've i've met along my way Mm. um and that's what drives me every day whether it's the young people that i work in brixton or the guys that were on the cell at one of scrubs or uh, the women you know i've done a lot of work around uh, domestic violence as well Mm. um it actually i met up with uh, this weekend somebody who was part of the reunite project um which i set up 12 years ago which is uh, again which wow. is about mothers leaving prison and i first met her in holloway prison and she was pregnant and you know and now you know we spent the day um at beach together with her children who are mm. now just about to go to college one of them wants to be a doctor one of them wants to be an engineer and it's just phenomenal like you know mm. I'm, I'm so you know that that's what keeps me going is because mm-hmm. those sorts of projects, that bit of investment that, you know, both in terms of resource, in terms of housing and, and but also kind of support at that critical mm-hmm. moment has just had such important ripple effects, not just for 
the woman that I work with, but for her children, this intergenerational change. They have now, you know, these aspirations and and that will change. And their children, you know, they're going to be less likely to end up to be a statistic Mm. and end up in prison. Their children are. And so you've you've changed this whole life course of, of individuals. But I guess why I left practice and policy is because you can work with small groups, but actually the problem is much, how do you do this on scale? Mm. How do you mm. impact, you know, thousands or, you know, sort of millions of lives rather than sort of a few sort of handful. And mm. as much as I really loved that frontline work, A, it's exceptionally draining. Like it's, you know, you're very personally invested and it's, it's very hard work. It's, it's very draining work to do that sort of frontline work. Um, but also I just wanted to, try and influence on a bigger scale actually it was at women in prison that they employed someone to do policy that I used to sit opposite she she mm-hmm. randomly just kind of got put at the desk opposite me and she was doing policy work and I was like wow I never even knew this existed it was yeah I knew I wanted to do law I'd left law you know, kind of, yeah yeah because I'd seen clients go through that revolving door and I'd been so yeah, frustrated yeah. about it I'd not gone there in the sense I kind of thought I just want to kind of go and explore mm. why it didn't work. Why were my clients going in and out of prison? Why mm. was the system working? Why was it, you know, how was it broken and why? And then she was having, you know, she, it was her job to try to influence that change. Mm. And so she, it was her that kind of suggested I go into the masters in policy and politics. And it was through that I met people that were working in parliament. So you get a kind of broader sense of how the politics of all this works um, mm. and sort of end up in, in policy. So I think it's, yeah, it, for me, that's my motivation. Um, yeah. And what I'd yeah. like to see leaving is particularly this, this piece about the experience and particularly, you know, seeing when I finish my career, rooms where you're in a room with ministers or your civil servants that are much more diverse in every sense mm, that, yeah. um, you know, people leading charities, people in senior policy roles, people that are probation officers, people that are civil servants, have got a whole range of different life experiences and therefore mm. improve the system as yeah. a result. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of, of rooms full of people, uh, regular listeners will know what question I'm going to ask you now, but maybe it's a bit tricky since you have so many meetings with people in, in different spaces. But hypothetically, thinking about, you know, thinking about the kind of work that you, that you, want, that you do and the, the impact that you want to make and the messages you're trying to get across, if we could create a room where we could put 50 people in and you had them for half an hour and you could say to them whatever you wanted to say, who would you be putting in that room and what kind of things would you be talking to them about for just this half an hour you've got them for? Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think the room would have to, ultimately it wouldn't be me speaking. It would uh, be people that have been directly impacted by the criminal justice system mm-hmm. in a dialogue with uh people that are in policy make you know policy influencing positions mm. um and having a really open and frank and honest conversation about mm. the, the 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 realities um of the impact of the criminal justice system and yeah um and i think that doesn't happen often enough in terms of um the sort of being open, you know, sort of really properly listening and mm. influencing and actually then ideally what i'd love to see is you know 
um, like I was saying before, people with lived experience actually in those roles and positions, um, yeah. able to directly not rely on other people to make the change on their behalf, but actually being yeah. able to, to, to manage themselves. Um, so, yeah, that's what I really like to see. Yeah, sounds, sounds very interesting. Great. Okay, thanks. And so those two reports are up and I'll, I'll make sure people can read those. But I believe you've got another one forthcoming soon on more restorative matters. What, what's that one about? So we're actually producing a series of briefings about restorative practices and approaches. So in the past, the CJA have done reports looking at restorative justice, which is when someone who's caused harm meets the person that they've harmed. Um, instead of a restorative justice conference. And so we do a lot of mm, work about yeah. um, improve access to our day conferencing. But what we now want to look at is how you actually really embed restorative culture across the criminal justice system. Mm. So we're going to have a number of briefings. The first one is actually looking at restorative approaches, how they've been used during the COVID-19 crisis across the criminal justice mm -hmm. system. And the second one is going to explore how restorative approaches can be used to break the school to prison pipeline. Um, so we basically wanted to have a look at good practice examples of how restorative approaches can improve, improve the school environment and reduce school exclusions. Mm -hmm. um, we'll also be looking at restorative policing. Um, uh, we'll look at restorative prisons. So, for example, you know, um, how adjudications in prison can be done restoratively. Uh, how, and also the one that I'm most excited about is looking at uh, restorative work with prisoners' families. So as you'll know okay. from the time when uh, we were both working at the club when I was there, mm. I was actually working with dads and their families in the lead up to release. Mm. And what we were able to do is to kind of facilitate restorative conversations between the, the fathers that were leaving and their partners or their or their children. Mm. Because it's really difficult, you know, in a visits hall, you know, to, to have those quite difficult and uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. Um, and take a plan. I guess maybe we should just describe what a visiting hall looks like then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, so it's a sort of main hall, and you've got lots of people there. I used to actually when I when I volunteered in prisons when I first started working in prisons, worked in the children's area. So often there's a sort of mm. play area for children. Yeah. There's a sort of a canteen area where you can buy some, you know, half some of the visits taken up buying tea and, mm -hmm. and bar chocolate. Yeah. But it's very open. It's not a private space, and often people will, you know want to have quite light-hearted conversations you know people of our families have traveled a long way to get there they might be tired um you know and often people just want to keep light-hearted because it's just a limited amount of time um and you want to keep also surrounded other, completely other by other prisoners and their families as well absolutely so any interaction you're having everybody yeah. else can see and i think that's yeah know, that must really affect how you interact with with your family in those moments. absolutely and i think these kind of difficult conversations can be really hard to do without having a kind of intermediary, yeah. someone that's not on either side of the, you know, that's actually mm. there, you know, as a sort of an in-between and to facilitate these conversations. Um, for example, yeah. I worked with a, with a dad who, you know, had said to me many times that, you know, his children weren't at all impacted by his drug use or him being in prison. Mm. And yet I was working with the family on the outside, knowing that it, it had, they absolutely, they, you know, they were doing well at school yeah. and getting on, but I, it had had an impact. And yeah. so being able to, you know, we worked with some professionals who were able to have this sort of mediated conversation and he then could understand what the impact had been on his his partner and, and mm. the children to apologise for that, to to try and repair that harm then and to work through together as a family. What's it going to look like when I'm yeah. back home? Because actually, 
you know, we've, life has gone on, you know, without him. And suddenly he's going to be back. There'll be a curfew. So he can't leave the house between certain hours of the day. You know, how yeah. is that going to work in practice to make that a successful transition back? And so as a family, they were able to have somebody in the middle actually working through with them. What's this going to look like? What are the boundaries? What are the expectations mm. on both sides? What are the assumptions that have been made um, yeah. to actually then end up with a much more successful um, resettlement sort of outcome? Mm. Um, because we know yeah. that if people go back home and that placement breaks down, then suddenly they, they don't have accommodation. You know, all that stability yeah. goes away. Support system, and, yes. And you see that that sort of revolving door again. So, mm. um, so yeah, I'm excited to look at kind of how restorative can be used in a whole number of settings across from just the system, um, including, you know, with, with families. Brilliant. And that report's out later in the summer. Yeah, so watch this space. <laughs> okay, great. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for making the time to be on the show. I know you're crazy busy at the moment, and so I really appreciate you uh, making the time to, to have a yeah. chat. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, as ever, please send it to someone who you think might also find it interesting or maybe studying these topics. Also, love to hear your feedback. So you can let me know what you thought on Twitter. You can find us at, at justice underscore focus or me specifically at Omar P. Khan. See you next time. Cheers.